Sub Rosa. A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. In this episode, we talk to Norhuda Ismail. Noor used to run rehabilitation efforts for Indonesian terrorists released from prison, and he's now based in Australia doing his PhD. I spoke to Noor about these rehabilitation efforts and his current research. We start off by talking about Noor's old boarding school and his roommate, Mubarak. Many years later, Mubarak became involved in the murder of over 200 people when he transported the explosives used in the 2002 Bali bombings. He's now serving a life sentence in an Indonesian prison. Noor was working as a journalist when he found out about this, and it changed his life. He then initiated some civil society efforts to tackle terrorism in Indonesia. We talk about some of the difficulties, failures, and successes he experienced. We then go on to talk about how terrorism in Indonesia has changed since the Bali bombings, and the impact of the Syrian civil war and the rise of ISIS. Then we end by talking about the documentary he's currently working on and his research at the moment. Hi, Noor. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having interest to my work. No worries. Okay, so your involvement in terrorist rehabilitation efforts and later terrorism research really began with you being the roommate of one of the Bali bombers. Can you tell us about that? Yes, my journey to this kind of world has been very personal. As you mentioned earlier, that I used to share room with one of the Bali bombers when I was 12 until 16. Uh, when I worked for the Washington Post, I started to discover that the one who was behind the Bali bombing in 2002 that killed more than 200 people, mostly Australian, I'm a, my own ma, was my own roommate. So since that first day, I have very personal questions why normal individual could get involved in these atrocities. So I have been traveling all over the world and talking to former convicted uh, terrorists inside and outside the jail, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, even like I just got back from Yemen and then Turkey. Just I asked them only three questions. How did they get involved in these terrorisms? Why do they stay? And then why some of them decided to live and what can we do as a society can help them to go back to normal life. And so you're roommates with him because you were both at the same school. How was it that he got involved in Jamal Islamia through that school? Yes, uh, we shared a room. Uh, we studied together in that school called Nguruki in Central Java. And one has to know that the founder of that school also the founder of Jamaa Islamia. So only very natural that some of the members of that, uh, for some of the students from that boarding school uh, were recruited to join that network, you know. So there was a talent scout within that school for JI, for Jamaa Islamia, and then he was recruited, in, including me, I was recruited a part of the member too. So this is how the story, if you look at the recent work of Mark Sedgman, for instance, it is clear that uh, there are uh, pathways or social network for individuals to get involved in terrorism, kinship part of it, and then school. This is one of the, you know, one of the uh, uh, key elements that one have to know uh, to understand a social network of those individuals 
before joining uh, any terrorist group worldwide. Yeah, and these founders were Abu Bakr Bashir and Abdullah Sunkar? Yes, the founder of that school is Abu Bakr Basir and also the late Abdullah Sunkar. Abu Bakr Basir now is known as the you know spiritual leaders for a number of uh, jihadi organizations in Indonesia. So he is now incarcerated in maximum security in in Indonesia, in Nusa Kambangan, you know, in a jail. Yeah. So how is it that he was inducted into JI all the way into becoming a terrorist and mm. you weren't? Yeah, when when he was inducted, he, he has been very good student. So he climbed up to the ladder of, let's say, te- terrorism career, I would say. He was picked up to participate in a military training in Afghanistan in the 80s. So he joined... Uh, a military camp called Al-Itihad al-Islami, this link to Saudi fundings. Unlike me, I was a tainted student. I had a crash with the daughter of the founding of the, the founder of the school. I took her date a couple times. So for the recruiter, they started to doubt my loyalty to Islam and to the network. So I wasn't really that pure. So I missed that chance, you know, to go to Afghanistan to fight. Um, I might say that I was safe by love, you know. Yeah. Well, that turned out very well. (laughs) I think so too. So how did you react after you found out many years later Mm. about his involvement in the Bali bombings? I was sitting in a press conference in Bali. Police distributed a leaflet of, you know, consists of who's who might be behind this attack. And to my surprise, my own roommate, Mubarak, was part of them. So, yeah, I was shocked. I ran to the beach and then asked my questions, you know, like, what the hell is this? You know, he was, uh, I know him as a loving father, caring husband, you know, read good Qurans and speak English. He was my idol. So since that, I have very personal questions, you know, like why a normal individual can get involved in this. And I strongly believe it, that no one is born as a terrorist. It requires processes. It requires regimens and then shaped by culture and any historical of time. So this is, I'm a, cons- therefore now I know that I know as a, I'm subscribed to constructivist perspective in the sense you know, that one requires processes to be to be terrorists. Okay, great. So tell us about the terrorist rehabilitation efforts you set up after this. From 2005 to 2006, I won British Evening Scholarship to study at St. Andrews University. In Scotland? In Scotland. You know, this is the school of the would be king of UK. So I indeed I share room with one of the Bali bombers, but also I share room I share the same school with the would be king of London of UK. So so it's a, such a interesting combination. <laughs> so then I did my field work in Northern Ireland. You know, it was in Northern Ireland I caught Epiphany where I saw a tiny NGO trying to help one former convicted terrorists in Christian and you know, like Christian and Catholic have been fighting for years, you know. They label each other as a terrorist to integrate the society. Then I, I I had in my mind if this guy who's involved with almost seven hundred years of conflict can be rehabilitated, of course that would be the same case in Indonesia. So I got back to Indonesia using my own savings from my own scholarship to establish the center, you know, this institute, the Institute for International Peace Building. You know, because there was no guidance book for terrorists to talk to terrorists. There is no book on terrorism for dummies. 
then I tried helping them, you know, like uh, through various initiatives. Most of them fail miserably, uh, like from car hire business, car couch business, and then t-shirt business fail miserably. So how did they fail, these initial attempts? Okay, for instance, like uh, my cacao business, you know, this guy was involved in uh, Afghan war. He fought together with bin Laden. So he's like kind of hardcore jihadist. All his family also jihadist. So he's like kind of the jihad as, a, as his business, his family business, literally. Uh, then he came to me because I interviewed him inside the jail. So we started to have a cacao business. But while he had a cacao business, he had a second wife. So he was busy with his second wife. He forgot the chocolate, also ignored terrorism. But I cannot make a recommendation, give all those released terrorists second wife. So I will have a lot of problem with uh, feminist activists, right? This failed. And then the t-shirt business, another jihadist release came to me and he started to have a business with a t-shirt. It went well, but when I visited the business, I was shocked to learn that the business was running very well, but they put uh, a sign or uh, jihad forever or Osama Bin Laden yeah. is my hero. So I don't want to be part of this jihad industry. So I closed on the business. I don't want to continue. But I, th- most of through this failure, I learned you know, from the first cacao business. I learned that uh, no one, not most of terrorists in Indonesia are part time. None of them are full time. So the best way to engage them will be occupy them with worldly activity. So they won't be thinking of doing that such kind of jihad and activity, literal interpretation of Islam. And the second one for this, if if you want for the my, the failure of through my decent business, I learned that if you want to come up with the social interventions, make sure that that social intervention will allow those individuals to interact with many different social settings. This guy running t-shirt business, he has his own community, he has their own call. Yeah, the business itself is good, but if they continue to use or advocate all the jihad violence, so so this is what I call the fantasy of de-radicalization. There is no such a de-radicalization for people like them. What I see is only disengagement. You know, they disengage from violence, but they still keep their radical thought. So, so I'm started to be very pragmatic after knowing all of this. So, one my another failure business was uh, uh, fish pond business. This guy even relapsed, so involved again, and I was like, I was scrutinized by my authorities. Why he decided to go back again to violence? Because he was lonely, you know. He was only talking to the fish, you no know, in real interaction with other human beings, other friends that give them meaning so that they can see themselves as a useful member of society. So I fell again. But until one day, there was a guy called Yusuf alias Mahmoudi. He came to me. I interviewed him 2003 as my capacity of a journalist. And then we started this uh, culinary business. When this um, hospitality or culinary business, I, I so with this business, I'm very successful in the sense that my client, Yusuf, reformed. Not only that, and he became an agent of change. He started to recruit others, just like multi-level marketing, member get members. What I learned from this engagement, from engagement from Yusuf, is this what I call it, three H concept. The first concept, the first H, what I call it, hard. Before you actually embark on any de-radicalization program or social engagement program, whatever you call it, 
you need to win their heart. You need to find things that hook them, the first thing. You've, you need to find platform. So in Indonesia, food has been very big. It's very big. The real greeting for Indonesian is not how are you and good morning is have you eaten? Let's eat. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, my mom cooked better. And food has been very, very big in Indonesia. So the lesson here is like to, to, to coin any intervention, you have to tap into existing popular culture so that people can easily join and people on the grassroots level can support you easily. So the first one is hard. So I managed to, to, to earn his trust. And then second thing, I will call it hand. So I transform his skill, use of skill, from using AK-47 to fry duck. You know, so transforming his skill, commitment, and for working hard to folk other things. As you, as you know, Albert Einstein has said, you know, you can't really destroy the energy. What you can do is channeling or transforming into different other things. That's what I have been doing, you know. So I use use of passionate about changing the world, but through different ways. So now he run. He is now quite successful businessman. He run his own cafe, and then now even has a car hire business. And he invited others to join. The last one will be head. I will call it head. Will be the ideology, because in this culinary business, you have to serve people. When you serve. You have to respect. When you respect, then you started to pick up something new, you know. So, so you start to celebrate the differences. And when you serve the coffee and your coffee is not good, you have to listen. Listening to others, respecting, you know, differences are the least thing that those jihadists will do. But this cafe provides such an opportunity. So slowly, Yusuf started to adopt this one, respecting others, celebrating differences. So, yeah, I... I hope I can, uh, you know, enlarge this into not only just single case of Yusuf, but how can I multiply this? How can I, you know, like uh, now that is my challenge at the moment. So after after Yusuf's embrace new life, I started to write. I wrote already how actually we talk to terrorists with the help of Yusuf. So now we have a manual how to talk to terrorists with the help from Yusuf. So we use that manual to teach parole officer. So imagine a terrorist teaching a state parole officer how to talk to me. So Yusuf no giving classes to a number of at least 12 prisons in Indonesia with with the help of us, with the psychologists, how to talk to them, you know, like how to talk to the terrorists. So from the state, hopefully, yeah, we, we start from if you want to embark on any CVE, counter-violent extremism, one, you have to look at this as a as a as tip of an iceberg, you know, those on the f- top, the pointy end will be former conflict terrorists because we have to make sure that they won't come back. And then second layer will be the family. The next layer will be their supporters, groups especially, social network, what they belong to before actually join. And the last one will be broader community, whom some of them are at risk, especially young people. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I've been talking. No, no, all good. Um, So would I be correct to say that what you're saying is the successes were based more on not initially targeting individuals' ideas and thoughts and ideology, but instead sort of engaging them through a shared cultural similarity, helping them build new social networks and career paths, and over time their ideas became more tolerant. Exactly. Yeah. 
because you know if you because I'm I'm a constructivist as, as a person you know the idea of socialization is important you know mm-hmm. uh, the reason why these people have most of the people have a singular interpretation of Islam or singular understanding of the world Manichean world many yeah. many so binary yeah binary evil. binary things <laughs> bro thanks it's okay sorry bro sorry man so, so the uh, you know, those people have been adopting uh, this black and white type of yeah. thinking literally because they do not have chance to socialize with many different peoples and because they are part of a group so the group mold them in a certain specific understanding so if we can give them provide them completely different social interaction social network will allow them to change that is my the largest things that i would say and i think that is the key things you know expanding the social network and so for this reason would i correct your skeptical of the term de-radicalization mm. and how much that implies that it's all about targeting ideas and ideology yeah i mean like targeting ideology will be good in the, to for the broader larger of community so at people in the community at large will not subscribe to that idea but for those who already embrace maybe the best way will be earning their trust you know like uh, you win their trust first so that they can engage in open discussion in a gradual discussion the idea to put them in classes or workshop I'm a bit skeptical about that. It's better when you do it through, you know, vacational work, you know, so then a very informal way of learning and as a gradual process. And then what I have been adopting in my program also kind of evaluation is important. Six months, one year, two years, what are the changes of these individuals? So therefore, I'm a bit skeptical if we rely heavily on the state for this kind of initiative. The nature of the state is risk averse. They cannot embrace on innovation, not because they don't want to, because they have to, they don't want to be seen to failure, you know, like they cannot, you know, like they have to, you know, like uh, to answer the call from the constituents with the people, you know, if they start to embrace things that are controversial like mine and they fail miserably and then they will be blamed. So they try to play in a very safe zone so therefore what we can do will be we create triangle cooperations between the state who have been sitting on the gold mine meaning that they know they have the access from those jihadis or those arrested terrorists and then like people society like me restless individuals who try to make changes and business sectors including the business aspect like you know i don't know how to run restaurant i don't know how to cook well but i know some people out there in the business sectors So does the Indonesian government try much in the way of rehabilitation efforts itself? I think rhetoric rhetoric rhetorically and politically rhetorically they really want to do it. I mean like but to do the rehabilitation it's you cannot do it yourself, you know. It require interagency work and this is what is lacking now. You know the in the, uh, the sectorial ego and then you know like uh, the 
is literally go find that the police feel superior over the prisons. The prison do not really trust, you know, the the police. And then once the community, community do not trust the social. When release in this, for instance, looking, I'm talking about specifically on the on the conflict released conflict terrorists. Yeah, uh, society still ostracize those conflict terrorists to integrate to society. So it's a lot of things happening and then intertwine each other. But at the moment, the focus by the, of the Indonesian government in countering terrorism is still heavily on kinetic, kinesthetic? Kinetic? Kinetic, sorry. On, kine, uh, on kinetic aspect. So it's in arresting. Arresting, shooting, shooting roasting yeah. and shooting. Just from the from the first Bali bombing until the day, at least 118 suspected terrorists have been killed before, you know, trial. And these shootings have often been in questionable circumstances. Yeah, circumstances. And that this raises a lot of humanitarian issue, human right issue, not humanitarian, human right issue. But in, in the long run, also, it's not in the benefit of society. Because I have been attending a number of those funerals, from from thousand, hundred, even couple of tens of people will attended those funerals, and then you know it's of each of those funeral, I have been seeing banners, and the banner says very straightforward: "Will come mujahid or fighters or warriors, and continue your fight. Let's continue the fight." So therefore, we see the recycling of vendetta. Among of those, uh, those conflict terrorists, uh, the the terrorists. So we see the configuration, the changes, partly because of that. And you see the swift, where in the past, since 2002 until 2009, uh, those terrorists uh, have been targeting. You know, they targeted they targeted the West interests of far enemy following the Bin Laden fatwa. So it's in hotels in Bali, hotels businesses in, Bali, in Jakarta. Uh, businesses in Jakarta and all this. What Basically what this Bin Laden fatwa says, you have to attack the head of the snake, which is the where all the Western interests. Because, you know, revolutionary, uh, money revolutionary, Islamic revolutionary will have failed miserably if they just attacking, if they just attack the local regime like what happened in Egypt with Nasser and others but so Bin Laden came up with an idea okay rather than focusing on the local let's we attack the far enemy this is the case but because of you know the Indonesian police have been very effective neutralizing those people including with those killings I said to you uh, you see if now police has been become the target now in many places you know and then you know I think this is scariest part when you see you know, the rejuvenation of generation of hate coming from young people, second generation of those arrested terrorists. So recently the terrorist threat within Indonesia had become small-scale attacks on police, mm. but then in the past couple of years mm. the Syrian conflict has been having a big impact on the nature of the threat. Yes. Can you tell us about that? You know, any terrorist attack in Indonesia or any terrorism incident in Indonesia, you you cannot understand any terrorism attack in Indonesia without linking it to any source, any global, local, regional or global issues. 2002 until 2009, even though they act locally, but they think globally, this is part of the global fight. 
Now with what happened in global level, which is Syria, you know, since Syria conflict erupted in 2012 until today, at least the Indonesian government believe 500 Indonesians have traveled, have gone to Syria and 24% of them are male, uh, female and children, which is fascinating to see how now we see more female members and children also. So the concept is different compared to what happened in the 80s until 2000, where many Indonesians actually fought in Afghanistan to participate in military training and during their holiday they fight. Or what happened in 2000 until 2002, until, until now onward, there are many Indonesians who participate in conflict zone in Philippines. But now that the day is different. The change is not, we see trend that some of them actually travel and to, to, to join ISIS or Anusra there, won't pose any threat. The threat will be, okay, they might come back, battle harden, pick up skill, have network, and then you see what happened with was Afghan fighters. Written unintegrated written fighters, they are solutions they want to to do you know terrorism here so Heckhammer one of the scholars says that the reason why a number of foreign fighter bring could bring havoc or threat because of two things uh, socialization and enlistment because these people only socialize among themselves so when they have a project the guy enlisted to join but now even Indonesian who are now in Syria started to contact the local network and provide logistical support, sending money and also directions how to carry out an attack. The Jakarta bombing, recent Jakarta bombing, is a clear example, or as a case of what we can scrutiny, uh, worth scrutinize. Worth scrutinize? Worth scrutinizing. I mean, worth scrutinizing. You know, like the guy, like the guy named Bahru Naim channeled the money and also directions for that kind of for this attack, you know, using his old network with the local, and sadly, most of the network was formed inside the prisons. So again, this is the failure of uh, of post detentions and post detentions here. The Indonesian government has been doing wonderful to, you know, to to clean up the milk when it's spilled. They know how to clean up. Very quickly. They know how to catch suspected they, they terrorists. They catch suspected terrorists very quickly, yeah. understand the network, but again, what to do with them after we arrest? We are still struggling because we do have a problem with the systems, uh, the prison system and post-prison system and society. So uh, putting heavily on kinesthetic? Kinetic. Ki- kinetic, sorry. Putting heavily on kinetic approach, police arresting I don't think this is the answer. It's only part of the story, uh, part of the equations. You know, the other part will be other things. Too. And do you think more Syria-related attacks are likely to come? With this, we you know there are number. There are at least forty individual joining Santoso group. Santoso is in 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 Poso in a conflict zone in 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 Poso in Central Sulawesi. And then Santos are pledged allegiance toward ISIS. Then the likelihood of this group to carry out an attack is very high, even though it will be low, or maybe just targeting the police or authorities. But still, you know, uh, you know, the the threat will not go away anytime soon. What you will see is a new group, but with the old players. 
So just to go into Santoso's group a bit. Okay. This is a group that formed a few years ago, from my understanding. Santoso used to be a member of Jamar Islamia, later on became a member of JAT, which was a new group Abu Bakr Bashir set up after he left Jamar Islamia. And then Santoso essentially formed his own group with a few dozen people mm. in central Sulawesi. Yeah. And has essentially carried out ambushes of police officers, yes. killed a number of people. Yes. And has caused the police a lot of embarrassment by evading capture for many years. Yes. To the point that the Indonesian military uh, is sort of claiming it should have responsibility for catching them and that it can do the counterterrorism job better. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the background story of Santoso. And I think now that the real threat in Indonesia will be people associated with Santoso, either directly in, either they are now stationed in central Sulawesi or other places in Indonesia. Because Santoso has a network also outside central Sulawesi, as you know, some of them from central Java who who, who, who travel all the way to east or central Sulawesi to participate in training. And some of them channel the money to support the logistic of the group because they live in the jungle. So they need support. So that is the challenge that we need to encounter in the future. And some Uyghurs from China have come and joined Santoso's group, mm. haven't they? So yeah. suggest Indonesia itself could become a foreign fighter destination. Yeah, Indonesia, that's a good point. Indonesia could be the destination of foreign fighters, but that number will be very low, I think, because the, attra- the attraction going to other places like uh, Mindanao or um, Syria, obviously, it's much more vivid and clear, you know. The conflict in Indonesia in Mindanao and in Indonesia now, especially in Central Sulawesi, is more local, very local. And then I don't think that Santoso has a, such a good military skills. Santoso is uh, he, he he emerged out of the ashes of JEJI and jihadis uh, in Central Sulawesi in post-conflict. He himself is not hardcore. She had his GI member, let's say, who who earn who 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 earn his military skill in any conflicts, global, regionally and globally. So his skill is more essentially in hiding and avoiding being caught exactly. than actually waging insurgency. Exactly, I think so, like that. And then it's a more romantic way to, you know, to solve the uh, conflict out there. You know, to con- the existing communal conflict. As again, therefore, we have to look at the history of every single terrorism cases in Indonesia. Uh, uh, Santoso case is, Khan uh, Santoso uh, case highlights the importance of uh, peace activities after post-conflict actors, after, post, after conflicts, uh, social conflict took place in that area. So, you, know, so you see the, the conflict has swift merely from conflict between the Christian and the Muslims, now between those Santoso group or the Islamists, I don't know what you call it, but maybe Santoso group against the state. So it's initially very horizontal, verticals, no horizontals. Yeah. And what are you focusing your research on at the moment? <laughs> Thank you for asking me such an important question, Sandro. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have been working on the rise of Indonesian foreign fighters with a very specific lens through 
masculinity perspective. So it's it's uh, because prop I saw that the the fact that disproportionately individual who travel to Syria and men male and I want to know what is this and you know how far and what ways masculinity support and sustains you know violence or an extremist group like ISIS you know as again let's go back to constrictivist theory you know I want to understand how the socialization of violence through this particular lens because being a man being masculine you earn it you don't bond with it it is not something inherent within any man you know you have to to follow or to conform a specific norm and values and within this group i borrow the concept from masculinity called hegemonic masculinity and subordinate masculinity uh, individual who fought who fight individual who fight they receive a position as a hegemonic masculinity he hegemon among the group so he earn respect and then can get an access and control and those who don't subordinate but most of the member are aspire encouraged to be the hegemon so this is you see the tensions so i want to understand how the language of masculinity was used to mobilize and sustain the resources of those extremist group Um, so this is within feminist international relations theory, correct? Yes, 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 yes. Would you be the first person to be looking at Indonesian foreign fighters through that framework? I don't know, you know, but I I hope so. So it will be cool, right? Yeah. For someone who has been working in this such rough and tough security issues, you now looking at through this very critical perspective, and I hope will be uh, what you call it, not 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 normative, you know, responsible. Yeah. yeah, I hope so. Especially to uh, to 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 understand new phenomena, or the role of women, you know, the position of women against this kind of issue. And so you have a documentary coming out soon. Can you tell us about that? Yes, I have to. I have been working on my documentary. I call it Jihad Selfie. Such a cool title, right? So if you Indeed. jihad and selfie, you know, jihad is a big thing. In if you Google jihad, you will find so many, you know, like new funny information and selfies. I think everyone does, especially in Indonesia. So in June 2014, I was invited to speak in a conference in Istanbul, and then I took some day off, walking around and having a kebab, and then I met. Skinny Indonesian by accident. I asked him, "Are you Indonesian? Yes. What are you doing here? Well, I'm waiting someone to pick me up. Oh, let's have lunch with me." And then offer the lunch. We start talk. We build such a good friendship. And then, what happened to your friends? No. Okay. I cannot wait with for you for longs because I need to continue my journey. And then he said, "Where are you going? Actually, I want to go to Syria." Wow. For what? Joining this? Why? Because two of my friends already traveled there. Because of Facebook, wow, it's for real. So I gave him my cell phone number, all of my details, contact, and I let him. I left. I let him. You know, I don't know what. I didn't know what to do with him. You know, should I said no? So this, and I don't know. I don't know. So I continue my my personal, you know, as a tourist. Then he contacted me. Oh, the guy who should pick me up didn't show up. Wow, that's good. Okay, can I see you again? Okay, then I, we sit down and see. And then I, he started to tell me the whole story. But I have to come back here to to Melbourne to start my PhD 
but I still managed to have a conversation with him. So during a break, during the conference, I used my time to visit him again to do the film, to do the filming. So I have been filming him since 2000, yeah, last year, in 2005, March 2015, after six months of conversation, earning trust. So film him in Turkey, then follow him going back in, in the border. And then I w- uh, went to Cairo. Uh, to interview friends of Indonesian suicide bombers that whom uh, that that in, uh, who in, who inspire my source, and then I interview the recruiters, and then interview in Indonesian prisons, yeah, all of the places, and then hopefully uh, I want to to give this as a I want to use this film as to start the conversation, to look at to look at this terrorism issue beyond security. You need to look at through many different lenses. Because of my PhD, I'm working on masculinity and looking at also the masculine aspect of those individuals. If you look at the research done by Kimmel, uh, Kimmel is one of those, one of uh, masculinity scholars. He says basically individual aged between 16 to 26 will do anything to to gain or to reclaim their masculinity, you know. So that is basically his theory. He interviewed 400 American students in college, and then they will do anything. He wrote a book called Gay Line. You know, it's basically, you know, this and and that is reflect. Uh, like uh, when I interviewed this my character, 16 years old boy from Aceh. In Australia, we we call it P competition. Uh, Pissing competitions, competitions, you know, like, oh, I do it better, I do it better, I do it, and I can, so it's like, this kind of things, you know, and it's beyond religions discussion, you know, you don't see any religions argument with this, it's more like an individual searching for, you know, ego, but test, test around things, why, like, make me think, you know, wow, maybe this is things that we should, we need to explore as well. You know, security measure is critical, it's important, will impact directly to stop those individuals to actually travel. But to look at this beyond security measure is important and critical too. Excellent. And what advice would you have for other people wanting to become involved in terrorism research? Start with a question that is burning to your heart. You know, you know like this, you, you will be easily burned out working in this subject if you don't have any passion and specific, you know, purpose to, to continue working in this issue. And then the most important also, try to come up with what I call it new. Do not recycle other people's work all the time. Having fresh perspectives is also critical so that terrorism issue can be, or terrorism study can be respected as well, like other studies. Uh, yeah, so in the long run, you know, and then I don't, and I think in terms for practical issues, this issue won't, won't go away anytime soon, especially with the ISIS. I don't think we can solve this issue within 10 years even to come. So if you want to start now, there are more opportunities for, you know, like for practical reasons, job or research or whatever it is in the subject. So I'm very glad to see more people will be working on this issue through fresh perspectives. It's great. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me.